Chapter One, Part Two of the Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists by Robert Tressel. Chapter One, Part Two. And so the talk continued, principally carried on by Crass and those who agreed with him. None of them really understood the subject. Not one of them had ever devoted fifteen consecutive minutes to the earnest investigation of it. The papers they read were filled with vague and alarming accounts of the quantities of foreign merchandise imported into this country, the enormous number of aliens constantly arriving, and their destitute conditions, how they lived, the crimes they committed, and the injury they did to British trade. These were the seeds which, cunningly sown in their minds, caused to grow up within them a bitter, undiscriminating hatred of foreigners. To them the mysterious thing they variously called the friskal policy, the fistical policy, or the physical question, was a great anti-foreign crusade. The country was in a hell of a state. Poverty, hunger, and misery in a hundred forms had already invaded thousands of homes, and stood upon the thresholds of thousands more. How came these things to be? It was the bloody foreigner. Therefore, down with the foreigners and all their works. Out with them. Drive them buggers into the bloody sea. The country would be ruined if not protected in some way. The friskal, fistical, physical, or whatever the hell policy it was called, was protection. Therefore, no one but a bloody fool could hesitate to support it. It was all quite plain, quite simple. One did not need to think twice about it. It was scarcely necessary to think about it at all. This was the conclusion reached by Crass and such of his mates who thought they were conservatives. The majority of them could not have read a dozen sentences aloud without stumbling. It was not necessary to think or study or investigate anything. It was all as clear as daylight. The foreigner was the enemy and the cause of poverty and bad trade. When the storm had in some degree subsided, "'Some of you seem to think,' said Owen sneeringly, that it was a great mistake on God's part to make so many foreigners. You ought to hold a mass meeting about it. Pass a resolution something like this. This meeting of British Christians hereby indignantly protests against the action of the Supreme Being in having created so many foreigners, and calls upon him to forthwith rain down fire, brimstone, and mighty rocks upon the heads of all those Philistines, so that they may be utterly exterminated from the face of the earth, which rightly belongs to the British people. Crass looked very indignant, but could think of nothing to say in answer to Owen, who continued, "'A little while ago you made the remark that you never trouble yourself about what you call politics, and some of the rest agreed with you that to do so is not worth while. Well, since you never worry yourself about these things, it follows that you know nothing about them. Yet you do not hesitate to express the most decided opinions concerning matters of which you admittedly know nothing. Presently, when there is an election, you will go and vote in favour of a policy of which you know nothing. I say that since you never take the trouble to find out which side is right or wrong, you have no right to express any opinion. You are not fit to vote. You should not be allowed to vote. Crass was by this time very angry. "'I pays my rates and taxes,' he shouted. "'And I've got as much right to express an opinion as you have. I votes for who the bloody hell I likes, and I shan't ask your leave nor nobody else's.' What the hell's it got to do with you who I votes for? It has a great deal to do with me. 
If you are to vote for protection, you will be helping to bring it about, and if you succeed, and if protection is the evil that some people say it is, I shall be one of those who will suffer. I say you have no right to vote for a policy which may bring suffering upon other people, without taking the trouble to find out whether you are helping to make things better or worse. Owen had risen from his seat, and was walking up and down the room, emphasising his words with excited gestures. "'And as for not trying to find out what side is right,' said Crass, somewhat overawed by Owen's manner, and by what he thought was the glare of madness in the latter's eyes. "'I reads the Ananias every week, and I generally takes the daily chloroform, or the obscurer, so I ought to know summat about it.' "'Just listen to this,' interrupted Easton wishing to create a diversion and beginning to read from the copy of the Obscurer, which he still held in his hand. Great distress in Mugsborough. Hundreds out of employment. Work of the Charity Society. Seven hundred and eighty-nine cases on the books. Great as was the distress among the working classes last year, unfortunately there seems every prospect that before the winter which has just commenced is over, the distress will be even more acute. Already the Charity Society and kindred associations are relieving more cases than they did in the corresponding time last year. Applications to the Board of Guardians have also been much more numerous, and the Soup Kitchens has had to open its doors on November 7th, a fortnight earlier than usual. The number of men, women and children provided with meals is three or four times greater than last year. Easton stopped. Reading was hard work to him. "'There's a lot more,' he said, "'about starting relief works. Two shillings a day for married men, and one shilling for single, "'and something about there's been 1,572 quarts of soup "'given to poor families, what was not even able to pay a penny, and a lot more. "'And here's another thing, an advertisement. "'The suffering poor. "'Sir, the stress among the poor is so acute "'that I earnestly ask you for aid for the Salvation Army's great social work on their behalf.' Some six thousand are being sheltered nightly. Hundreds are found work daily. Soup and bread are distributed in the midnight hours to homeless wanderers in London. Additional workshops for the unemployed have been established. Our social work for men, women and children, for the characterless and the outcast, is the largest and oldest organised effort of its kind in the country, and greatly needs help. Ten thousand pounds is required before Christmas Day. Gifts may be made to any specific section or home if desired. Can you please send us something to keep the work going? Please address cheques across the Bank of England, Law Courts Branch, to me at 101 Queen Victoria Street, E.C. Balance sheet and reports upon application. Bramwell Booth Ah, that's part of the great happiness and prosperity what Owen makes out free trade brings, said Crass with a jeering laugh. "'I never said free trade brought happiness or prosperity,' said Owen. "'Well, perhaps you didn't say exactly them words, but that's what it amounts to.' "'I never said anything of the kind. "'We've had free trade for the last fifty years, "'and today most people are living in a condition of more or less abject poverty, "'and thousands are literally starving. "'When we had protection, things were worse still. "'Other countries have protection, "'and yet many of their people are glad to come here and work for starvation wages.' the only difference between free trade and protection is that under certain circumstances one might be a little worse than the other but as remedies for poverty neither of them are of any real use whatever for the simple reason that they do not deal with the real causes of poverty the greatest cause of poverty is overpopulation 
remarked Harlow. "'Yes,' said old Joe Philpot. "'If a boss wants two men, twenty goes after the job. There's too many people and not enough work.' "'Overpopulation,' cried Owen. "'When there's thousands of acres of uncultivated land in England, without a house or human being to be seen, is overpopulation the cause of poverty in France? Is overpopulation the cause of poverty in Ireland?' Within the last fifty years, the population of Ireland has been reduced by more than half. Four millions of people have been exterminated by famine, or got rid of by emigration, but they haven't got rid of poverty. Perhaps you think that half the people in this country ought to be exterminated as well. Here Owen was seized with a violent fit of coughing, and resumed his seat. When the cough had ceased, he sat wiping his mouth with his handkerchief, and listening to the talk that ensued. "'Drink is the cause of most of the poverty,' said Slime. This young man had been through some strange process that he called conversion. He had had a change of heart. He looked down with pious pity upon those he called worldly people. He was not worldly. He did not smoke or drink, and never went to the theatre. He had an extraordinary notion that total abstinence was one of the fundamental principles of the Christian religion. It never occurred to what he called his mind that this doctrine is an insult to the founder of Christianity. "'Yes,' said Crass, agreeing with Slime, "'and there's plenty of them what's too lazy to work when they can get it. Some of the buggers who go about pleading poverty have never done a fair day's work in all their bloody lives. Then there's all this new-fangled machinery,' continued Crass. "'That's what's ruining everything. Even in our trade there's them machines for trimming wallpaper.' And now they've brought out a painting machine. There's a pump and a hose pipe, and they reckon two men can do as much with this ere machine as twenty could without it. Another thing is women, said Harlow. There's thousands of them nowadays doing work what ought to be done by men. In my opinion, there's too much of this ere education nowadays, remarked old Linden. What the hell's the good of education to the likes of us? "'None whatever,' said Crass. "'It just puts foolish ideas into people's heads "'and makes them too lazy to work.' "'Barrington, who took no part in the conversation, "'still sat silently smoking. "'Owen was listening to this pitiable farrago "'with feelings of contempt and wonder. "'Were they all hopelessly stupid? "'Had their intelligence never developed beyond the childhood stage? "'Or was he mad himself?' "'Early marriages, that's another thing,' said Slime. No man oughtn't to be allowed to get married unless he's in a position to keep a family. "'How can marriage be a cause of poverty?' said Owen contemptuously. "'A man who is not married is living an unnatural life. Why don't you continue your argument a little further, and say that the practice of eating and drinking is the cause of poverty, or that if people were to go barefoot and naked there would be no poverty? The man who is so poor that he cannot marry is in a condition of poverty already.' "'What I mean?' said Slime, is that no man oughtn't to marry till he's saved up enough so as to have some money in the bank. And another thing, I reckon a man oughtn't to get married till he's got an house of his own. It's easy enough to buy one in a building society if you're in regular work. At this there was a general laugh. Why, you bloody fool, said Harlow scornfully. Most of us is walking about half our time. It's all very well for you to talk. You've got almost a constant job at this firm. If they're doing anything at all, you're one of the few what gets a show in. And another thing, he added with a sneer, we don't all go to the same chapel as old misery. 
Old Misery was Rushton & Co.'s manager or walking foreman. Misery was only one of the nicknames bestowed upon him by the hands. He was also known as Nimrod and Pontius Pilate. "'And even if it's not possible,' Harlow continued, winking at the others, "'what's a man to do during the years he's saving up?' "'Well, he must conquer himself,' said Slime, getting red. "'Conquer himself is right,' said Harlow, and the others laughed again. "'Of course, if a man tried to conquer himself by his own strength,' replied Slime, "'he'd be sure to fail. But when you've got the grace of God in you, it's different.' "'Chuck it, for Christ's sake,' said Harlow, in a tone of disgust. "'We've only just had our dinner.' "'And what about drink?' demanded old Joe Philpot suddenly. "'Ear, ear,' cried Harlow. "'That's the bleeding talk. "'I wouldn't mind having half a pint now if somebody else would pay for it.' Joe Philpot, or as he was usually called, Old Joe, was in the habit of indulging freely in the cup that inebriates. He was not very old, being only a little over fifty, but he looked much older. He had lost his wife some five years ago, and was now alone in the world, for his three children had died in their infancy. Slime's reference to drink had roused Philpot's indignation. He felt that it was directed against himself. The muddled condition of his brain did not permit him to take up the cudgels in his own behalf, but he knew that although Owen was a teetotaler himself, he disliked Slime. "'There's no need for us to talk about drink or laziness,' returned Owen impatiently, "'because they have nothing to do with the matter. "'The question is, what is the cause of the lifelong poverty "'of the majority of those who are not drunkards, and who do work? "'Why, if all the drunkards and won't works, "'and unskilled or inefficient workers "'could be by some miracle transformed into sober, industrious, "'and skilled workers to-morrow, "'it would, under the present conditions, be so much the worse for us, "'because there isn't enough work for all now.' and these people, by increasing the competition for what work there is, would inevitably cause a reduction of wages and a greater scarcity of employment. The theories that drunkenness, laziness, or inefficiency are the causes of poverty are so many devices invented and fostered by those who are selfishly interested in maintaining the present state of affairs, for the purpose of preventing us from discovering the real causes of our present condition. "'Well, if we're all wrong,' said Crass with a sneer, "'Perhaps you can tell us what the real cause is.' "'And perhaps you think you know I was to be altered,' remarked Harlow, winking at the others. "'Yes, I do think I know the cause,' declared Owen. "'And I do think I know how it could be altered.' "'It can never be altered,' interrupted old Linden. "'I don't see no sense in all this air talk. "'There's always been rich and poor in the world, and there always will be.' "'What I always say is this here remarked Philpot, whose principal characteristic, apart from thirst, was a desire to see everyone comfortable, and who hated rows of any kind. "'There ain't no use in the likes of us troubling our heads or quarrelling about politics. It don't make a damn bit of difference who you vote for, or who gets in. They're all the same, working the horrible for their own benefit. You can talk till you're black in the face, but you won't never be able to alter it. It's no use worrying.' The sensible thing is to try and make the best of things as we find them, enjoy ourselves, and do the best we can for each other. Life's too short to quarrel, and we shall all soon be dead. At the end of this lengthy speech, the philosophic Philpot abstractedly grasped the jam jar and raised it to his lips, but suddenly remembering that it contained stewed tea and not beer, set it down again without drinking. "'Let us begin at the beginning,' continued Owen, taking no notice of these interruptions. 
First of all, what do you mean by poverty?' "'Why, that you've got no money, of course,' said Crass impatiently. The others laughed disdainfully. It seemed to them such a foolish question. "'Well, that's true enough as far as it goes,' returned Owen. "'That is, as things are arranged in the world at present. But money itself is not wealth. It's of no use whatever.' At this there was another outburst of jeering laughter. Supposing, for example, that you and Harlow were shipwrecked on a desolate island, and you had saved nothing from the wreck but a bag containing a thousand sovereigns, and he had a tin of biscuits and a bottle of water. "'Make a beer,' said Harlow appealingly. "'Who should be the richer man, you or Harlow?' "'But then, you see, we ain't shipwrecked on no dissolute island at all,' sneered Crass. "'And that's the worst of your arguments. "'You can't never get very far without supposing some bloody ridiculous thing or other. "'Never mind supposing things what ain't true. "'Let's have facts and common sense.' "'Here, here,' said old Linden. "'That's what we want. A little common sense.' "'What do you mean by poverty, then?' asked Easton. "'What I call poverty is when people are not able to secure for themselves "'all the benefits of civilization, the necessaries, comforts, pleasures and refinements of life.' Leisure, books, theatres, pictures, music, holidays, travel, good and beautiful homes, good clothes, good and pleasant food. Everybody laughed. It was so ridiculous, the idea of the likes of them wanting or having such things. Any doubts that any of them had entertained as to Owen's sanity disappeared. The man was as mad as a March hare. If a man is only able to provide himself and his family with the bare necessaries of existence— that man's family is living in poverty. Since he cannot enjoy the advantages of civilization, he might just as well be a savage. Better, in fact, for a savage knows nothing of what he is deprived. What we call civilization, the accumulation of knowledge, which has come down to us from our forefathers, is the fruit of thousands of years of human thought and toil. It is not the result of the labor of the ancestors of any separate class of people who exist today, and therefore it is by right the common heritage of all. Every little child that is born into the world, no matter whether he is clever or dull, whether he is physically perfect or lame or blind, no matter how much he may excel or fall short of his fellows in other respects, in one thing at least he is their equal. He is one of the heirs of all the ages that have gone before. Some of them began to wonder whether Owen were not sane after all. He certainly must be a clever sort of chap to be able to talk like that. It sounded almost like something out of a book and most of them could not understand one half of it. "'Why is it,' continued Owen, "'that we are not only deprived of our inheritance, we are not only deprived of nearly all the benefits of civilization, but we and our children are also often unable to obtain even the bare necessaries of existence?' No one answered. "'All these things,' Owen proceeded, "'are produced by those who work. We do our full share of work, therefore we should have a full share in the things that are made by work.' The others continued silent. Harlow thought of the overpopulation theory, but decided not to mention it. Crass, who could not have given an intelligent answer to save his life, for once had sufficient sense to remain silent. He did think of calling out the patent paint-pumping machine, and bringing the hose-pipe to bear on the subject, but abandoned the idea. After all, he thought, what was the use of arguing with such a fool as Owen? Sawkins pretended to be asleep. Philpot, however, had suddenly grown very serious. "'As things are now,' went on Owen, "'instead of enjoying the advantages of civilization, we are really worse off than slaves.' 
for if we were slaves, our owners in their own interest would see to it that we always had food and—'Oh, I don't see it like that,' roughly interrupted old Linden, who had been listening with evident anger and impatience. "'You can speak for yourself, but I can tell you I don't put myself down as a slave.' "'No, me neither,' said Crass sturdily. "'Let them call themselves slaves as wants to.' At this moment a footstep was heard in the passage leading to the kitchen. "'Old misery!' or perhaps the bloke himself. Crass hurriedly pulled out his watch. "'Jesus Christ!' he gasped. "'It's four minutes past one.' Linden frantically seized hold of a pair of steps and began wandering about the room with them. Sawkin scrambled hastily to his feet, and snatching a piece of sandpaper from the pocket of his apron began furiously rubbing down the scullery door. Easton threw down the copy of the Obscurer and scrambled hastily to his feet. The boy crammed the chronicles of crime into his trousers' pocket. Crass rushed over to the bucket and began stirring up the stale whitewash it contained, and the stench which it gave forth was simply appalling. Consternation reigned. They looked like a gang of malefactors suddenly interrupted in the commission of a crime. The door opened. It was only Bundy returning from his mission to the bookie. End of chapter 1, part 2